Thank you, Emma and Cody. Great to have you lead us. Oh, I'm going to try something. I'm going to say this and see how you respond. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen, amen, amen. We are in Eastertide, as Kelsey mentioned, and it's that 50-day uh, period between uh, Easter Sunday and Pentecost Sunday, and it is a chance for us to really think on what does it mean to experience and live into the grace and fullness of new life in Jesus Christ. And uh, we've got a new sermon series we're eager to share with you. Daniel Susenbach and I have come up with this, and it's, uh, it's called Better Decisions Exploring Regret-Free Living. Better Decisions Exploring Regret-Free Living. And it's based on this book that Daniel brought to our attention. It's a book by Andy Stanley, and it's uh, by the same title, Better Decisions. And it's uh, an interesting book. Andy Stanley, of course, is the preaching pastor and leader of North Point Community Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And he raises these five questions that can help us make better decisions living into the flourishing new life of Jesus Christ. And uh, we're going to not look at five, we're going to look at four over the course of this series. And the first one is the conscience question, and that is what we're thinking about today. Uh, what role does the conscience play in helping us live a fruitful Christian life? Next week, we're going to have the wisdom question. Uh, what does it mean to have God's wisdom guide our decisions? Then the third week, we'll have the legacy question. What kind of legacy are we leaving uh, through our lives to others in the world? And then the last week, we'll have the love question, perhaps the most important question. What does it mean to live lives that are loving in the manner of Jesus Christ? So that's kind of where we're headed. And today, we're going to look at conscience. And to do that, I want to invite you to a text, a text from uh, the letter to the Hebrews. Let me say a, a little bit about that before I read it for you. We don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. You look in your King James Bible and it will say the letter of Paul to the Hebrews. Well, that, that's based on an old tradition that most Christians have not adopted. We don't know who wrote it. We know that the person was likely a Jewish Christian writing to a group of Jewish Christians who had found the fulfillment of their faith in Jesus Messiah. And yet they were experiencing persecution, beginning to. And they were tempted to jettison, to leave the Christian faith, to fall back. And so the writer is saying, don't do it. In Jesus, you have fullness. In Jesus, you have all kinds of grace and goodness of God. Don't turn back. And to uh, put the linchpin in his argument, the writer says, Jesus, after all, is our great high priest, the one who is the intermediary between God and us, the one who's the go-between, who mediates the life and love of God to us. And now in chapter 10, we pick it up in verse 19. Please follow along. The writer writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, this heavenly temple, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance 
that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we begin. Our Lord, we thank you for uh, these truths. We thank you for this way of life. We thank you for fruitfulness and flourishing that you give us in this season and always. And pray that you guide us now by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. When we come to the subject of conscience, I suspect that we as Christians are more influenced by Jiminy Cricket than we are by Jesus Christ. You remember Jiminy Cricket, don't you? From the uh, animated film of Walt Disney in 1940, Pinocchio. Jiminy Cricket was teaching the uh, come-to-life wooden doll Pinocchio about how to lead a human life and the importance of conscience. And Jiminy Cricket taught him a few things uh, through this song. Let's listen to it. Take the straight and narrow path, and if you start to slide, give a little whistle, give a little whistle, and always let your conscience be your guide. For many of us, this is gospel truth. Always let your conscience be your guide. Really? I'm not so sure. A lot of Christians, when conscience uh, accuses them one way or another, they believe that this is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Thinking, of course, to John chapter 16, where Jesus was teaching his disciples and said, when he comes to you, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send in my name, he will convict the world according to sin. We forget that Jesus said it's the world that the Holy Spirit convicts, not the church. But we have often not questioned this enough. And so we assume that we should always let our conscience be our guide. And that was certainly my story as a new Christian. I was five years into my newfound faith, newly married to Rupali. We had moved to Pasadena where I was a seminary student at Fuller Seminary. And I was taking Dr. Bob Munger's class on prayer. And I was reading in our apartment uh, a book on spiritual warfare prayer. And it was... uh, It was uh, gripping, to say the least. And it felt like it entered through my right ear. I remember it distinctly. It was an accusing thought. Something from my pre-Christian past, a peccadillo, something I did wrong that I'd repented of five years ago, and it wasn't all that big a deal necessarily, but it came in and lodged inside me. And I dismissed it, 
And I prayed the promises of God, and it continued to burrow its way into my heart and mind. I grew anxious. I, uh, I began to spiral. I had a panic attack. And over the next several days, I lost sleep. I had insomnia. I didn't know what was going on. And it felt that my conscience was accusing me of something, and I had to do something about it. That's what I felt. And this resulted in 18 months of anxiety, guilty feelings, what came to be diagnosed as a clinical depression. And so for the better part of my first 18 months of marriage and my first 18 months as a seminarian, I went through this very, very dark place. I had to re-examine everything. I had to reevaluate the gospel. Was it good? Was it not? Who was God? Who was I before God? What did the cross of Christ mean? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I began what I came to call my journey into grace. And I uh, was lucky to have good psychotherapy at Fuller Seminary, wonderful older mentors, a supportive small group, and best of all, my wife, Rupali, who was such a great support to me. Well, I grew and I learned, and I'm still growing and I'm still learning. Uh, and I want to share a little bit about what I learned, what I learned biblically and theologically, what I learned psychologically, what I learned that helped me, and I hope it could help someone here today. The first thing I learned is this. Conscience is not the voice of God. That's going to come as a surprise to some of you. Conscience is not the voice of God. If that's all you get this morning, that will be enough. Friends, conscience is not the voice of God. I began to study uh, biblical studies, theology, with all these themes in mind, and I began to read people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian killed under the Nazi regime. And in his book, Ethics, Bonhoeffer wrote this very important quote. He wrote, conscience pretends to be the voice of God. Here's what Bonhoeffer meant. He, he and others go back to the very opening of the Bible in Genesis. You remember in chapter 2, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can read it literally, you can read it metaphorically, but the point is this. The man and the woman are told, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As the serpent says, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. And theologians believe that the conscience factor in us is this this uh, idea of good and evil divorced from the presence of God, where we begin to determine what's, what's good, what's evil, and it's, it's really a result of falling away from God. It's really a result of original sin. Wrap your mind around that. That's an interesting thought. So, so furthermore, as we began to study it in that time, I learned that in the Old Testament, there is no word for conscience. It's not a big concept in the Hebrew Bible. When you get to the New Testament, the word conscience appears 30 different times, mostly in the Apostle Paul's writings. And it's a very fluid, very nuanced word. It means different things in different settings. And Paul, we think, adapted this word from the secular Greek philosophy. He took the word and he infused it with Christian meaning for the churches. And what you begin to see as you study these 30 occurrences of conscience, you begin to see a few things. Number one, in the New Testament, conscience can be weak or strong. Paul makes this point very clear in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, where if you'll remember in that context, he's writing to the Corinthian Christians 
some of whom are going to the marketplace, going to the meat market, and buying and then eating meat sacrificed to idols. And it's no big deal because Jesus is Lord and, and uh, he's, he's, he's high above any other power. You can eat meat, so they think. And those are the people with a strong conscience. But the weaker brethren, the weaker brothers and sisters, they think there's something really wrong and spiritually defunct about this. Don't eat that meat, they say. And Paul has to write the weaker folk and, and begin to coax them along gently to a place of stronger conscience. The point is, conscience can be weak or strong. It can be all over the map. Number two, in the New Testament, as you study it, conscience can be seared. Paul makes this point in 1 Timothy 4. He talks about false Christian teachers who slip into the Christian community to lead them astray. These were Christians who began a distorted view of their faith and began to lead others astray. And their consciences were seared, twisted, broken, off the mark. So consciences can be seared. And thirdly, consciences in the New Testament can be manipulated by the accuser. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Satan, the devil, the opponent of God, who in Revelation 12 verse 10 is called the accuser of the brothers and sisters. The one who stands before God's throne and accuses them night and day of all the ways they've fallen short. The point is, in the New Testament, the conscience is fluid and dynamic, and it isn't clearly the voice of God. Conscience is fallen. Conscience has fallen in our beings along with every other aspect of our humanity. When we divorced ourselves from God, our minds were affected, our hearts were affected, our souls were affected, and our consciences were affected. Throughout that 18 months, I delved a little deeper, and I've learned some other aspects of conscience, particularly guilt feelings. A couple things I wanted to share with you from my learning, my experience. Number one, in my own experience, I've learned that aspects of conscience, particularly guilt feelings, can also be inconsistent and arbitrary. Why was it, after all, that after five years of following Jesus Christ with utmost sincerity, something from five years earlier would come up, a small thing, and accuse me? Why not big things like how I failed to love people well, or didn't show justice or mercy or kindness or those things? Why was it just this one little peccadillo? Well, it's because our consciences have fallen and they can be inconsistent and arbitrary, focusing on certain things we've done and neglecting a bunch of other things. Do you see why the conscience can't be the voice of God? Number two, our consciences can also be strongly influenced by our upbringing and our personalities. Some of us have grown up in very strict households, some of us had a parent that could never be pleased. And this parent we have projected onto God, and now we've internalized that parent, parent's voice, and we believe that's the voice of God. But it isn't. We can be strongly influenced in our conscience by our upbringing and by our personalities. Our personality, some of us here are very sensitive and very, uh, very rigid and very strict and very... Uh, uh, together, and we, we, we have a, a highly accusing conscience, and we need to be aware of this. But thirdly, thirdly, our consciences can be expressive of mental health issues. Uh, very often, uh, when we are depressed, uh, 
Psychologists tell us there are at least three types of depression. Are you familiar with this? There's sadness, when we feel blue and, and empty. There's anger, we can be depressed and very angry. Or we can be anxious, and with that have a bunch of guilt feelings. This is how depression often manifests itself. And so we need to be aware that, that it's a very complicated, layered issue, and we can't simply equate it, our conscience, with the voice of God. Jiminy Cricket said to Pinocchio, always let your conscience be your guide. That's bad advice. Bad advice. Conscience is fallen. Conscience is not the voice of God. Conscience can be an internalized God substitute that actually keeps us away from God and God's mercy and grace and goodness. So what do we do then with our consciences? What do we do with them? Well, I'm happy to tell you that positively speaking, our consciences can be several things. Number one, they can be renewed and redeemed in Jesus Christ. This is what I think the writer to the Hebrews this morning was trying to tell us. He mentions that because of Christ's sacrificial blood, because of his loving death and resurrection for us, we can have our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. We don't need to live under the tyranny of that voice. We can hear the voice of Jesus instead say, you are loved. I forgive you. My cross has taken care of that. Trust me. Jesus Christ wants us to be free. We can be renewed and redeemed in our consciences. Number two, our consciences can also be guided by God's grace and love. I so appreciate what John the Apostle writes in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 18, where John writes, there is no fear in love. We're talking about the love of God. There is no fear in it. But perfect love, God's perfect love in Christ, drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So many of us, have grown up in traditions, Christian traditions even, that have motivated us by fear and guilt and then told us that God was doing that as well. And this is not what John says. This is not what the gospel bears witness to. I've got to tell you this story. Uh, in those 18 months that I went through the deepest, darkest place, I was desperate for uh, a book, any book, a Christian book that would help me uh, in this time. And so what did I do? I went to the Fuller Library, of course, and I went downstairs to the basement, to the stacks, and I found the book. I found this book called No Condemnation by Bruce Naramore. Bruce Naramore, I don't know if he's still alive, but was teaching at Talbot's Theological Seminary on the Biola campus in Southern California, was trained in theology, trained in psychology, and wrote this masterful book on guilt and motivation and conscience. No condemnation. So I saw this book. I'm in the stacks down in the basement reading this book, and I think, this is the book for me. But I want this book. I don't want to borrow it. I want to mark it up. Like, you know, mark it up, highlight it, and make notes in the margin. I want this book. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go to the Fuller Bookstore. And I go to the Fuller Bookstore, and they said, sorry, that book's not available. Ugh. So I trudge home to our apartment. I'm trudging home to our apartment, and I go up the outer stairs to apartment number eight, which was ours, 
And I'm praying and I'm desperate. I'm thinking, Lord, I need this book. What do I do with this book? And I look to my left and through my neighbor, Ron, in the unit below us, through his window, there's a light and there's a book table. And on that book table, I see this book. (laughs) No condemnation. Well, I rush right over to his door. I knock on the door. Where did you get that book? And he said, well, you can special order it. And so I did. And that book became for me a divine gift where I saw so much of God's goodness and teaching. It resonated deeply with the scriptures. It was sound psychology as well. And it was so helpful. I took pages of notes. And in my journey into grace folder the other day, I pulled out those notes. And those, those quotes are as good now as they ever were. Jiminy Cricket said, and always let your conscience be your guide. Really? I don't think so. I don't think so. No, because conscience as part of the human being has fallen. It too is tainted and warped and twisted by sin. And it too needs the redeeming grace of God to be useful to us. Conscience is fallen. Conscience is not the voice of God. But conscience can be retrained and reshaped by God's word and God's spirit to be uh, useful underneath the grace and leading of Jesus. I think what God wants us to do is not just follow dictates of conscience. He wants us to follow Jesus, to be in tune with him, to be alert to to, to the grace and goodness of his spirit as the spirit shepherds us along. Conscience must give way to Jesus Christ as we make decisions. Give way to Christ and his cross and his shed blood. You know, you cannot outsin the grace of God. Can I get an amen? amen? You cannot outsin the grace of God. God's grace covers all our sins. And I just love, I love this one verse. I, I have to remind you of it. You know, in, in John's first letter, chapter 2, verse 1, John says this. He says, I've written these things to you so that you may not sin, but... If anyone sins, we have an advocate, a defense attorney, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If your conscience accuses you, take it to your lawyer. Take it to Jesus Christ who defends you, who wants you to know of his love and grace. Friends, receive this as we finish this sermon today. Words that are so helpful to all of us. Romans 8, beginning at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we give you thanks for your grace, mercy, and goodness, your kindness, your sacrificial death, your powerful resurrection from the grave, which we ponder in this Easter season. I pray for one person who may be listening to me now, one person whose conscience has been ravaged by guilty feelings, one person who feels that they are beyond your forgiveness. Oh, Lord, break through to them, comfort them, deliver them, comfort all of us and help us walk in your grace and mercy and new life. This we pray in your name. Amen.